Well, I see my name up there on the screen. I guess it's my turn. Yeah. There it is. Here, the one and only. Uh, at least our fingers are crossed. The one and only. Hey, uh, I've, I've been saying that uh, at um, time change in the spring, you know, the, the people that show up to church with one less hour of sleep, I, I say that uh, those people that show up, that's kind of like the cream rising to the top. Amen. And so, so here you are. Thank you for coming today. Uh, some of you have gotten the, now the second of my little email update that I'm sending out. And if you, if you didn't get uh, an email from me and would like one, just be sure and write your name on one of those cards and make sure that um, Susan gets it or drop it off back there at the desk. Um, and just, you might put the word add, and that way they'll know that we're supposed to add you to that. Uh, I am struggling a little bit in terms of technology, and there are a lot of different databases in the church, and you know the database I'm using is such that only one email goes to each home, and I know that some of you are like, well, we each want our own email, and um, if you expressed that to me last time, uh, I haven't fixed it, and you may have noticed that. Uh, my apologies for that, but it's a technology thing, and we're kind of working on it, uh, but uh, bear with me a little bit. So this is the second now of a little three-part series on uh, what we call the prodigal son uh, found in Luke chapter 15. And uh, I'll, I'll say that uh, if you weren't here last week, that uh, I'm kind of using Rembrandt's masterpiece called The Homecoming as a reference point. And last week, I, I wanted you to know that there was a, a famous uh, author, a Bible scholar, who got enamored with this painting, and he went to where the actual painting is in St. Petersburg, Russia, at a museum called the Hermitage. And he went and sat in front of that painting for a total of seven or eight hours. And he was so impacted by this masterpiece that he ended up writing, writing a book about it. And I read that book, and it inspired me to preach this little three-part sermon series. By the way, I mentioned that in the first service, and uh, afterwards, I was talking to a couple, and they said, well, we've been to the Hermitage in St. Petersburg, Russia, and we've seen the real one. I'm like, oh, can I touch you? Yeah. I was pretty well, I was pretty impressed with that. Um, so this is Rembrandt's rendition or his impression of uh, the story that we're looking at. Um, before I get any further, though, uh, sometimes we are, our, our knowledge about a, a passage of Scripture is uh, enriched when we look at it in different translations or different versions or different paraphrases. And so I have a little bit of a different version here to read to you. And so just listen close. It's a little bit different. And there are a few words in here that we don't use very often. But, but so here, here is uh, the story of the prodigal son, a, a different version. And maybe it'll help you and me understand the text a little bit more clearly. 
feeling footloose and frisky, a feather-brained fellow forced his fond father to fork over his farthings. He flew to foreign fields and frittered his fortune, feasting fabulously with faithless friends. Finally, facing famine and fleeced by his fellows in folly, he found himself a feed-flinger in a filthy farmyard. Fairly famished, he fain would have filled his frame with foraged food from the fodder fragments. Fooey! My father's flunkies fare far fancier, the frazzled fugitive fumed feverishly, frankly facing facts. Frustrated by failure and filled with foreboding, he fled forthwith to his family. Falling at his father's feet, he foundered forlornly. Father, I have flunked and fruitlessly forfeited family favor. <laughs> but the faithful father, forestalling further flinching, frantically flagged the flunkies to fetch, to fetch forth the fattest and finest fatling and fix a feast. The fugitives fraternal fault finder, the subject of our text today, frowned on the fickle forgiveness of former Falderall. His fury flashed, but fussing, but fussing was futile. The far-sighted father figured, such filial fidelity is fine. But what forbids fervent festivity? For the fugitive is found. Unfurl the flags with flaring, and let fun and frolic freely flow. Former failure is forgotten, folly forsaken. Forgiveness forms the foundation for future fortune. Now, I don't know who wrote that, but that's the prodigal son in the key of F. <laughs> in case you had not figured that out. So here we are now, we're going to actually really begin to look at the text, and let me just say that last week when we looked at uh, the prodigal son, most of us could identify with the prodigal because we've all been prodigals, we've all rebelled against God and felt a desire to come back to Him, so we identify with that pretty well, and that's, that's the direction that most pastors go when they preach on Luke chapter 15, it, it, this text. They're going to focus on the prodigal. Not very many sermons are preached on the elder brother. And I think one of the reasons is nobody wants to identify with the elder brother because he's a bit of a bummer in the story. He's, he's kind of the bad guy, really, in the story. Um, but that's what we're going to do today. We're going to focus on the, on the elder brother. And by the way, let me just say that I am on purpose going out of sync with the text. The text talks about, really kind of focuses on uh, the prodigal, focuses on the father, and then focuses on the elder brother. But I've decided to work from youngest to oldest. And so here we are, the elder brother. Now, I want you to take a look at the picture, and we were here last week, and 
we focused right here on the prodigal. And we noticed how worn his clothes were, and we talked about that at length, and I'm not going to revisit that. The hands on his shoulders, of course, that's the father. And then this figure here on the right is the elder brother. Now, let's remember that this is an interpretation by Rembrandt of the text. And it's important to remember that because in the text, when the younger brother comes home, uh, the elder brother isn't even there. But this is, again, an interpretation by Rembrandt, and he's making a point. And he's making his point, I think, partly by how he has positioned and dressed the elder brother. Now, if you look at this, the elder brother, what strikes you about the elder brother? I'm asking for audience participation. Who said that? Nice clothes. Yeah, he, he, he's a bit of a dandy. Yes. Okay, what else strikes you about the brother? Elder brother, yeah. Pardon? He's chapped. What does that mean? Oh, that must be Alaskan. Is that an Alaskan word? Yeah. <laughs> well, this boy from the Midwest didn't, don't know what that meant. But So yeah, he's, he's torped. He's bad. He's chapped. I like that. Chapped. What else do you see about the older brother? Who's, who said that? He's, he's looking down. And it's almost as if, on purpose, he has positioned himself in a place that puts him above, not just, not just his brother, but he's, he's above everybody else. I say that carefully because it's kind of like me right now sitting up here on this platform. But yeah, so he's above everybody else. What else do you notice about the elder brother? Uh, his arms are crossed. The body language. Yeah, and you, and you said, he's got a beard. Wow, what a coincidence. Look at you. <laughs> Real men wear beards. Okay. The other thing that I notice about the elder brother is, yeah, he's, he's torqued, you can look at him, but it's, it's the obvious absence of joy. He's not at all happy. His, his demeanor, his posture, where he has chosen to stand, everything says that this is not a happy moment for him. Now that's that's Rembrandt's, that's how Rembrandt has painted this story. Let's take a look and see how Luke has painted the story here in the text. So I want to begin reading verses 25 to 27. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him, what's going on? Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has come because he has him back safe and sound. And so what has happened here is there's a major party going 
on. I mean, so here's the elder brother. Presumably, he has worked all day long in the fields. He's hot. He's worn out. He wants to come home, get cooled off. He wants to relax from being out there all day long. And as he draws close to the house, he, the text says he hears music and dancing. I mean, it must have been quite a party, you know? And so he's, I'm guessing he's all excited because he's probably saying to himself, something's going on. Maybe he's like, maybe they're throwing me a surprise party, you know? So he gets a little bit closer and he sees a servant of his father's. He says, hey, what's going on down at the big house? And the servant's, I think, I think the servant, when he responds, I think the servant's excited. And I think the servant is gushing. And he's saying, your brothers come back and there's a party going on. Mm. And why not party? I mean, think about it. Here is this father who, who has been praying and God has answered his prayers. And this rebellious son has come to his senses and returned from this far off distant country and and he's come back. He's not dead. He, he's alive. And in a very real sense of the, of the word, you can say that this is a house of joy. I mean, this place is rocking. I mean, it's really happening. Joy permeates every corner of the house. Now, some of the, some of the details about what's going on here, we didn't read because we're going to talk about them next week. They're nestled in the middle of the story. But I'll, I'll, I'll just add some of the details now so you really get the sense of what's going on here. It, it tells us in the text early on that when the, when the prodigal son comes back, his dad places a royal robe around his shoulders. And his dad gets a ring, a, a, like a family ring, and puts it on his finger. And then they kill the best animal and make the very best barbecue you could find anywhere that anybody's ever had in their entire lives. And so they're just going at it. This impromptu house band is, is rocking and people are kicking up their heels. And I mean, it's just, it's just a joyous, joyous place. And that's the way it ought to be. Anytime... Grace and forgiveness intersects. There ought to be joy, joy, joy. And to me, this kind of represents what every, plant, every church on the planet ought to be like whenever a prodigal or someone that's not familiar with the church or unfamiliar with the love of God, every time they walk in the doors of a church, I'm saying we ought to party. We ought to light up. We ought to, I was going to say kick our heels. I'm not going to try that. But I mean, we ought to be thrilled if somebody comes and they're seeking the Father. Hey, by the way, I had an interesting experience yesterday. I'm shopping with Jackie at Walmart, and I'm just minding my own business, which means I'm pushing the cart, 
and somebody looks at me that I've never met before, and they said, hey, are you that new preacher at Birchridge? I went, yeah. How do you know? Have we met? No, we've never met. How do you know? He says, I follow you on Facebook. <laughs> and so we, we started to talk. We probably stood there. Jackie and I probably stood there for 10 or 15 minutes talking to him and his wife. And he said, he said um, we don't go to church anywhere, but we're going to come and try Birchridge. And I'm like, all right, you come and you do that, and I'm just going to warn you right now, if that man shows up, I'm going to do the happy dance. <laughs> just nobody have your phone going on. I don't want that on, on Facebook or nothing, but we, I'm, I'm just saying we ought to be happy when people show up, when people want to come to the big house and see, the, see uh, and meet God the Father. Uh, okay. So there's a party going on, but not everybody is happy. So I'm reading the first part of verse 28, which says, The older brother became angry and refused to go in. I mean, he's like sporting an attitude. He's like, nope, nope, I I am not going to go into that house. And then the last part of verse 28, So his father went out. And pleaded with him. Mm. He tries to talk sense into this oldest son of his. And even that, that word there in the text is descriptive. Pleaded. Begged him to come inside. But the older son isn't going to do it. And so in verses 29 to 30, he, he makes his case. Here's why. He's not about to go in that house. Verses 29, 30. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you, and I have never disobeyed your orders. Huh. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could have a potluck with my friends. Uh, celebrate, sorry, celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. I think you can take all of those words and boil them down to just three. What about me? But what about me? Huh? What about me? He says, I've, I've been slaving away for you, for you, Dad. I've never, this phrase struck me, I've never disobeyed your orders. And I think that struck me because his words suggest that he views his relationship with his dad as like one of duty, one of obligation. I, I don't see any love in those words at all. And then he says, you never even gave me a young goat so I could party with my buddies. And 
So his, his priorities are all mixed up, messed up. He's, he's really confused about what's important. And so he refuses to see that the fact that his younger brother is back, that it's something that is worthy of celebration. He's, he's more concerned about some sort of potluck he never had with his buddies. It's just kind of strange. Then the el- elder brother goes on and says, but when that brother of mine comes crawling back, look what you've done for him. And so the father pleads with him, come inside the house. I, I haven't figured out what all this means, but I, I, I've just noticed that, that it's interesting to me at least that when the younger son rebels, he leaves the house. And when the older son rebels, he won't go into the house. I, I, I don't know what that means, but I, 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 think there's something, I think there's something there. So let's remind ourselves that in this culture of 2,000 years ago, the dad is, is really deeply offended because really what this uh, younger son has said when he said, I want my inheritance now, he's, just, he's saying, I wish you were dead. Can we just kill you now so I can have my portion of, of the inheritance? So the father is really deeply offended But here's the father's take on this, and now verses 31 to 32. My son, the father says, you are always with me. Everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead, and he's alive again. He was lost, and he is found. So the father talks to the elder son and says, you've always been with me. Everything that I have is yours. And it's almost like he is saying, don't you get it? Don't you understand? You've been here the whole time and all all of this is yours. Isn't that I just give, you know, the younger son, the rebellious son, rebelled and so I gave him part of it. But everything here is yours. How could, how could you lose sight of that? And he go, then he goes on and says, your brother was lost but now found, was dead but now alive. He's like, don't you, don't you get it? This is reason to celebrate. This is reason to party. This is why I did all that I, that I did. You don't understand. Now, when you, when you come to a text like this, and study it, there's almost always several key truths or lessons that you can pick up and begin to talk about, and and that's true in this text. But I just want to pick up on one of these truths that I think is really obvious and prominent, and it's this. The lesson of the elder brother is that you can remain home and be just as lost as someone who isn't home. You can be home, you can be in the church and be just as lost as those who aren't here. And to me, that's a really sobering thought. And if you see, as as I do and as most Bible scholars do, 
that really this whole thing kind of represents this idea, or at least suggests the idea that the elder brother was raised in church. He's always been around the father. He's, he's never wandered. He's always stayed true. He's always obeyed. He's always done the right thing. But somehow he got this, what about me attitude? And I think it's because he sees the relationship he has with his father in terms of a, a boss-employee kind of thing. Like, this is all about duty. It's about obeying the Father. And yet, in spite of that, he lives in the house with all of the privileges, with all of the rights, with all of the good stuff. And yet, he's filled with bitterness. And he's, he's filled with resentment. And, and there's, there's no joy in him. And I read the text, and, I, and, and I'm like, wow, that's really a picture of how some church folk have become. I mean, they, they've stayed faithful to the church for a, a, a lot of years. They've done the right thing. You know, they've served on committees, and they've led life groups, and they've given to the church, and they've shoveled snow, and they've read the Bible through 40 times, and five of those blindfolded. <laughs> you know, you know church folk like that. They just, everything they've done, and they've done everything right, but there's no joy in them. They take possession. And then when a prodigal comes in, it's like, oh, okay. Well, we work, they, they won't say it out loud, Elder brothers don't say it out loud, but it's like, well, we worked hard to pay for that carpet. Better not spill any coffee on that carpet, you know? And, 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 and we have a tendency, those of us that have been in the church for a long time, we have a tendency to cross our arms and watch the newer folk that come in. We're going to make sure they don't get out of line. We're going to make sure they don't take too many parking spots. Because we need, you know. Um, and, and I have to tell you, I, I don't know that this really speaks to many people here, but um, it speaks to me. Because I've been in the church a long, long time. I am now 65 years old. And I started going to church when I was five days old. Five days. I don't know that I've missed hardly a Sunday <laughs> in 65 years. I. You know, and it's easy to be the elder brother if I'm not careful. I mean, it's easy for me to cross my arms and look down at other people, and it's easy to be judgmental. And I'm telling you, I've, I've seen it in other churches. I've not seen it here. But I've seen that attitude in other churches. I mean, I remember uh, years ago, there was a, a young man who came to our church, and he got involved, and he, he became a member of the church, and he was all excited about God, and, you know, he was just, just a great, great guy. One day, he was driving out in the country, and he went by a, a, a trailer park, and it, he was, felt prompted to go to the trailer park. So he got in the trailer park and pulled in, and he drove around, and 
pretty soon it was apparent to him that it was a low-income trailer park development. And the other thing that was apparent to him was there were kids everywhere. I mean, everywhere, running around, playing in the summer. I mean, kids everywhere. And he got this idea. He said to himself, we've got a church, a 15-passenger church van sitting back at the church, just sitting there in the garage every Sunday morning. What if I drove the church van down here and began to pick up kids? So he came and talked to me about it. And I'm like, yeah, do it. So then I, we just so happened we were having a, a meeting with, with our equivalent of the, of the leadership team. And I said, hey, here's what's going to happen. And I'm excited about it. And they got quiet. Now, this leadership team, uh, they've been in the church a long, long time, you know. They bought and paid for everything. I said, I was a new guy. And finally, one gentleman cleared his throat, and he said, well, before we commit a resource like the church van to something like this, we need to do an ROI study. Anybody know what an ROI study is? Return on investment study. I'm like, what? What do you, what? I'm sorry, I'm sorry, what, are you, what do you mean? Well, it's going to take a lot of gas. Return on investment. Do you, you see what that is? That's the posture of the elder brother saying, we paid for that van. We're going to pay for the gas to go in, the, in that van. Does he think he's getting the church credit card to fill up the van? Really? Come on. I just couldn't believe it. I was at another church, and we were starting to reach, reach kids and stuff. And, and, the, and by the way, I'm not going to tell any stories about you guys. Because there, there are no stories to tell. If I tell stories about you guys, they're good. And, and I mean that. So, but anyhow, but I was, at, I was at church one time, and we started reaching kids, and church, kids running around. And the church treasurer pulled me aside on a Sunday morning. Say, hey, preacher, I got to talk to you. Okay. I'm thinking this could be important. She said, I'm glad you all sitting down. Are you just, can, you know, just like, come on, really? She said, why are we reaching all these kids? They can't pay the bills. Oh, man, just slap me dead. I'm like, do you, do you see the, the attitude? It's the elder brother standing there on the right corner, high up and looking down. It's like, yeah. You know, it, it's that kind of attitude. I mean, I just, it, 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 man, I, I, I'm done telling stories. I'd be embarrassed to tell you all the stories I've heard and that I've seen in different churches across the years where elder brothers call the shots. And, you know, maybe I'm preaching to myself because, again, I've been in the church a long, long time. But we, I think every church has to on purpose make the decision. Are, are, are we going to side with the elder brother and cross our arms and say, we paid for this, we paid for that, 
you know. Um, and then look down at newer folk that come in. Or are we going to side with the prodigal? Who is like crying his eyes out and can't believe the love of the father and fall on his knees and say, I'm just thrilled to be here. Make me a hired servant. I, I'm just, I can't believe I'm here. I can't believe, Father, that you took me back. I think we have to make that decision. We know what the right decision is, but now I guess I'm, I'm just going to get personal and ask about each of you. I mean, may we never forget what it's like to have the joy of the prodigal and to fall at the feet of God and say, I can't believe you love me. I can't believe you don't want to kill me. I can't believe you forgive me. May that be the case here at Birchridge today, tomorrow, and forevermore. Let's stand and let me pray for you. Father, I confess to you that it's really, really easy for me to look at the elder brother and go, tisk, tisk, tisk. <laughs> oh, that elder brother, he's a, he's a bad man. And yet, Father, I'm mindful of the fact that if I'm not careful, that's me. Father, remind me please, and remind each of us here today that we are all sinners saved by grace, and that at the foot of the cross, the ground is level. There are no places to stand up higher than anybody else. And may each of us always be amazed and enthralled at the fact that you chose to love us. And you put a robe on our shoulders, a ring on our finger, and served up some mighty fine barbecue for us. May we forever be grateful. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.